All right. Well, I'm eager to get to the word tonight. I hope that you are as well. You're here. So let's lean into it. Ecclesiastes chapter six, a shortest chapter of the whole book. And uh, I think I was just looking and I think chapter uh, 12 or uh, one of the the latter chapters has only 14 verses. So there's a there's a close second. uh, But so far, the chapters like like we did last week was 24 verses, I think. And uh, so there's some some bigger ones. Uh, tonight is not one of them, and uh, I don't know what that means for the time. Uh, Brother Hunter and I and Brother Escobar, we always laugh about that idea uh, that, hey, it, it's, it feels impossible, at least to me, to gauge how quickly I'll be done. Uh, when I got less notes, I go longer. When I got more notes, I'm out quicker. It, it's, it's not a perfect science. I haven't figured it out yet in 10 years of pastoring or nine, nine years of pastoring, 13 years of full-time or 14 years of preaching. But uh, tonight we're getting into a good one. Um, it's not a happy one, though, okay? Can, can we just accept that right out the gate? Um, I was reading some commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, as I often do in my studies, uh, multiple different commentaries, trying to get some ideas and some, some understanding of texts and cross-references and so forth. Uh, I will say this as far as commentaries go. I never read a commentary until after I have prayed and read over the text multiple times and taken a look at it myself, but I want to have a more perfect understanding. And, and a commentary is a little bit like listening to a sermon. You're about to listen to me give you commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, we ought to have, we ought to listen to preaching. We ought to read what other people say about texts so that we don't have uh, any just kind of narrow-minded interpretation of it. And so commentaries are good. But one of the things I was reading was, uh, it was a bit of a tip on how to read the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to give this tip to you. Uh, The author said that it's a good idea to follow Solomon's eyes when reading the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, you'll notice it in the very first verse uh, of tonight's topic. He'll say, there's an evil under the sun, which I have seen. And oftentimes, and you'll see it multiple times, even in the short chapter we'll look at tonight, uh, he'll talk about the things he's seen. And so the author was saying, hey, in all the chapters that you're reading, just pay attention to what Solomon is looking at. And that's not, that's not dissimilar from what we have talked about. We've kind of used the illustration of sitting at a table. Solomon goes out and explores and he comes back with his observation or what he's seen. And uh, so that certainly fits right there. But think about the idea of his eyes. Um, in the last seven chapter, or forgive me, the last, uh, uh, I guess, four or five chapters that we've gone through, we've seen some of the things he's looked at. And uh, a lot of times in the chapters, what we find is that he's looking around himself. And as he looks around himself, he finds oppression, he finds inequity, he finds injustice. Um, and as some of you have already pointed out to me, some of that injustice is his own fault. And, and, and you know, th- you think about the times where he talks about injustices in the kingdom and leaders not leading right. Well, this is the king of the nation uh, that's writing this particular book. And so some of this injustice undoubtedly is caused by the, either by uh, Solomon himself or by the, the culture he's created in his own country. And so as he looks around, he doesn't find any hope. Then it gets even worse because then what you'll find in some of the, the chapters that we're going to read in the future and some we've already seen is that he doesn't look just around, but he looks within. And within, he finds just decay and discontentedness. He hates everything that he's ever accomplished, everything he's ever tried. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything on the inside is empty. And then there is one place, though, that he looks. So he looks around, he finds nothing. He looks within, he finds nothing redeemable, nothing good anyway. But then every now and then, and last week is a good example of this, every now and then he looks up. And uh, for just a few moments, he breathes some fresh air and we get a bit of a reprieve from some of the negativity. Uh, And again, I don't mean that even remotely disrespectful. The book of Ecclesiastes is a negative book because it's life away from God. I don't know what else you would expect the book to be other than overwhelmingly difficult because life away from God is 
overwhelmingly difficult. And so Solomon is explaining to us with great clarity and wisdom, as he says in chapter two, in all of this, my wisdom remained with me. As he's going and just living such a a broken, empty life, there is no other way to describe it than the way he describes it. It's empty, it's hopeless, it's purposeless. But there are these moments, like I said, where he looks up and he gets his eyes on God and he sees the goodness of God for a minute. Uh, And we've seen it at the end of a couple of chapters where like, you know, he'll talk about how empty life is. And then he says, yeah, but there is good that a man's received from God and to enjoy that good is a good thing. And so for these brief moments, it's almost like he pulls his head up above himself and his surroundings and breathes a bit of life back into us. Last week was a good example of that. It was a great chapter. It was very topside. Um, and the reason was he was observing man's relationship, yes, with money. And that was part of the beginning portion of it. Uh, that uh, Actually, it's part of the end portion of it. That, that you know, you can love silver and you can love abundance and it's not going to make you satisfied. But the first part of the chapter was, was really a breath of fresh air. Uh, he was talking about our relationship with God. That we ought to come into his presence with carefulness and watch our foot when we enter into the house of God. And, hey, he's in heaven and you're on earth. And so let your words be few. And just some really solid Christian theology, right? And I know that Christianity isn't in existence at the writing of it, but some really solid biblical theology there. But then what invariably happens is Solomon nosedives back into the muck and mire, which is the case, chapter six tonight. Um, But again, this is why it's important. Uh, This is an important truth for us to recognize that if we keep our eyes around us, it's depressing. If we look within us for hope, it's depressing except for the reality that the Holy Spirit is within us, right? There's that one redeemable, the only good thing inside of us is Jesus, right? But the idea, if we look up and we breathe from heaven's air, oh man, there's hope and now there's value and it's not better to be dead or never have been born. Now there's value in my struggle and value in my life and there's something more beneficial than just using my money. I can actually engage it. There's something more beneficial than just enjoying you know, the sweet things that I've been given, but there's something more eternal and beneficial for it. So an earthly human-focused life is depressing. It is empty because it majors on the injustices. Because there's so many of them, right? It, it's, I mean, you can't miss the forest for the trees everywhere you look. You can't watch the news. Yeah, you can't watch politics. You can't watch television. I just nothing you can see. You can't go to work and not see the injustices and wickedness around you. And so, again, take, take it from just the general understanding of Ecclesiastes. It's a good idea to keep your head up. It's a good idea to look toward heaven and draw that air into your lungs as opposed to just breathing the difficult things down here. Um, so the, uh, as I mentioned, chapter number five was a breath of fresh air, but I also mentioned Solomon doesn't, Solomon doesn't give us a lot of those, and he doesn't give us sustained views of heavenly focus. Chapter six takes us right back into the darker observations of life under the sun. And I want to give you a bit of an equation. I, I, the Lord gave me this thought, and we've said it a few different ways, but I don't know if we've said it this clear. Um, a wise, uh, the, the, the wise observations of Solomon are 100% irrefutably correct. They're inspired by God, so they're 100% irrefutably correct. That life away from God is broken. It is empty. It is hopeless. It is better to be dead than this. It's 100% irrefutable, but listen to me. It is also largely 100% escapable, okay? You don't have to live that way. Because again, even if, I'm not saying you can change the variables, but we already saw Solomon's perspective on being a slave and Paul's perspective on being a slave were two very different perspectives, right? And what changes that? There's not a contradiction. This is life away from God. This is life as a born-again believer, and it completely repaints the circumstances. It brings value to our suffering. And so, yes, what we're going to read is 100% irrefutably, unfortunately, very true. 
but it is also 100% avoidable. That you can live a life that doesn't take you to those places. You can live a life that doesn't leave you in those places. And you and I are given this other opportunity through Jesus. And Solomon was very much so as well in a very particular day and age. But he was still given that opportunity to have that relationship with the Lord himself. So these realities that we're going to look at tonight, they only bite and destroy us if we are living under their law. If we are living under their tyranny, if we are living away from God, if we are living a life under the sun and not under heaven, we are going to fall into those categories, but they are avoidable um, by and large, okay? So let's look at uh, uh, the chapter. Let's just dive right in tonight. And let's get some study. It's a short chapter, but there's a lot of things to look at. So look at verse number one. He says, there is an evil. Now, I don't want you to think of that in terms of like grave wickedness. Um, it, it means something slightly different, and I'll show you what it means. Um, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. Now, the reason I say it's not evil in terms of wickedness, because he's actually about to describe a judgment that God himself brings. So it's not God doing some evil. The word evil means this. It means that which causes harm or misfortune. So it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a hard thing I've seen. I've seen a really difficult reality that brings pain and misfortune. And then he uses the word there at the end in verse number one, that is common among men. The idea of common means that you're more likely to find it than not find it. It's, it's common. It's kind of everywhere, right? Uh, people have a cell phone. That's common. You're, you're more likely, if you're going to walk up to a random individual, if you point at him in the mall, there's a high likelihood that Brother Jack has a, has a cell phone, right? It's, it's more likely to find than it's not. So think about that. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But he says, I've seen this, this hurt. I've seen this that, that, cause, that which causes pain to be among the sons of men more than it's not. Uh, and so that, that's important. That's a, an important detail. Well, what is it he finds? Look at verse number two and three. Let's read them together. There's a lot there. So we will back up and go after it just kind of thought by thought. But look at verse two and three. Here's what he sees. It's common. It's more likely to find than not. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Now, it's important. He's saying the people who have more than enough, I've seen God give people just to where they they have no desire for anything. They have no need for anything else. They could never work another day in their life. Notice what's more commonly found in them than is not found in them. It says, uh, uh, so that he wanteth uh, nothing for his soul uh, of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity. It is an evil disease. This is one of the things he notices, that God who gives people things, and then all of a sudden they can't even use or eat those things because they're taken by other people. He says, this is more common than it's not. Look at verse three. And then he says, if a man beget an hundred children and live many years, some of you got some catching up to do, and live many years so that the days of his years be many and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an un... And look at how pungent and uncomfortable and maybe even un... I don't know if unfair is the right word. I just, I really don't like this illustration that he uses, but he says an untimely birth is better than he. He says it would be better to die through miscarriage than to be the people he just listed. That's the common evil. He says you're more likely to find in man than not. You pointed at a random man that had, you know, all these children or lived all these years or had all this wealth, you are more likely to find that it would be better for them to have died in the womb than for them to have experienced these things. Now, there's a lot in these verses that we'll still need to go back and understand, but I hope you notice he he gave us kind of four conditions 
uh, that many people think bring happiness. In fact, I was doing some research on it. It's, it's not just an American culture that would say, these four things bring me happiness. Um, in one of the commentaries I was reading, they were considered ancient oriental. And obviously the Bible wasn't written in, in that particular area. But in other ancient cultures, these four things are things that people would say, yeah, those will make me happy. Well, what are they? Wealth, honor, long life, and family. And he just said, if you could get as much of that, that you would never have need of another child, another day of living, another word of honor or praise, or or another dollar in your bank account. He says, if you could get to the top of that pile, it was better that you died. And I'm like, man, Solomon, chill out. (laughs) You know, like, man, could could we approach this with a little more like, I don't know, like even keeled? But this is, this. there's some real truth to some of this, as uncomfortable as it gets. But these are things, honestly, that's a pretty good list. If, if I could come to you today and say, hey, listen, you know, I can give you guaranteed, you know, if you take this pill, you sign this page, I can guarantee you these four things. You're going to have as much wealth as you need. You're going to have as much honor as you ever want. You're going to have as many, ki- as many kids and family members as you possibly need, and you're going to live as long. And even in fact, he's going to use the illustration of 2,000 years old. He says, and yet there's grave unhappiness because that list of what we would think are very satisfying things, right? Family, that's a, that's a good thing, right? Money, not a bad thing. Length of days, not a bad thing. Honor, not a bad thing. This is a very satisfying list, and yet Solomon says this list is things that don't satisfy. It's like, man, we can't win for losing, it feels like. You know, like madness and folly, totally get that. Let's leave that alone. But this is an honorable list. This is a good thing. Having having family and having long life and and having these things. But he he tells us it's not that those things are evil. It's that something is missing. There's something missing. Let's go back and we'll see it. Look at verse number two. So let's try to walk through why these things aren't satisfying. Because he isn't saying, you know, kids aren't satisfying or, you know, having things is bad. Look at verse two. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, okay? Uh, and that's why we would add that one in there. Uh, honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Now, I don't know how this man got his wealth. Um, it does seem like God gave it to him. So it doesn't seem, I mean, I, I don't think you'd be loyal to the text if you wanted to read into this, that this man got it by, you know, nefarious motive. Well, it doesn't seem like that. It seems like the man was doing stuff and God said, all right, well, I'm going to give you stuff. But, keep reading, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity. It is an evil disease. So why would God give someone something and then not let them use it or let them be satisfied by it? Well, again, compare Scripture with Scripture. And if you're ever going to compare Scripture with Scripture, the best way you can compare Scripture with Scripture is Scripture within its own book, right? Even within its own chapter, especially within its own sentence. We only have to go back a couple of verses. Go back to chapter 5, verse 10. God tells us why someone will, get, will have something, but it will never satisfy them. And it's the only reason that I could think, and maybe there's other reasons, but uh, certainly this reason does fit into the text, um, is uh, chapter 5, verse number 10. It tells us why a man won't get to enjoy, why someone else will eat the riches. And we already saw that. When riches are increased, they, they that eat them increase as well. That's chapter 5 as well. But look at verse 10 of chapter 5. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. So let's take that verse. And again, there may be other reasons why God says, well, I'm not going to give you the ability to eat it. I don't know. But I do know he tells us here, this is a reason God doesn't let someone eat the good that he's given them. He blesses them with stuff. But then here's what oftentimes happens. And and I'm going to use the, the phrase that Solomon does. 
it's more commonly found than it's not. When someone receives just overwhelming wealth, it tends, what Solomon seems to be saying is that it's more likely than not that their heart will fall in love with that. And then God says, okay, you don't get to have that. And again, I I don't think this is talking about every single person because, you know, there are wealthy people and well-off people uh, who do love Jesus and use their funds for him. But I think if you look at the overwhelming majority of like Fortune 500 million billionaires, I'm pretty sure they all love money. I don't know. I don't know the character of their heart, but it seems more common than not that the heart of a man who gets a bunch of things ends up loving those things. And God says, okay, we're not going to let you, and we're not going to let that satisfy your heart. And so right here, he says, listen, you can, this is the common evil. And you, it, people fall in love with their stuff when they have a bunch of stuff. And you can go back to Proverbs uh, uh, in, in, uh, in the book of Proverbs and find that, uh, I don't know which, uh, it's hard to know who exactly wrote every, every proverb, but it may very well have been Solomon where he says, hey, feed me with food convenient for me. He says, I don't want to be poor and forget the Lord, and I don't, or I don't want to be rich and forget the Lord and poor and take the Lord's name in vain. He says, I just want to kind of live down the center in this regard because oftentimes wealth, Jesus said it's easier to enter in through the eye of a needle, uh, the camel through the eye of the needle than it is a rich man into heaven. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to charge them in the church. Hey, charge them that are rich in the world lest they be high-minded, right? Because oftentimes when stuff comes, man, we get puffed up with it. Our heart falls in love with it. Though that's not an everybody guarantee, it's more common than it's not for people who have lots of money to fall in love with wanting to get more money. And that's a huge danger. And Solomon says, like, you're, you're not going to be able to eat that. You're not going to be able to keep that. You're going to build barns and not be able to have it. You're going to leave it to somebody else. And that's what he said in the last chapter. But then there's these other two. So money is one of those things. You're like, yeah, I get it. We probably shouldn't, you know, live for it. But, but family, pastor, and health, and long life, and honor. Well, let's keep reading. Look what he says in verse number three. If a man beget an hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good. So that's the important part. And also that he have no burial. I say that an untimely birth is better than keep. So here's what he just said. You can have all the family in the world. You can live in verse number six. He'll say a thousand years, two times. You can live 2000 years. But if you do not experience the good of this life, then it'd be better for you to have never been born, to have died. That's what Solomon's saying. So if you and I have a family and we just heap to our ki- ourselves a bunch of kids, or if you and I live a long, long life and heap to ourselves a bunch of days, but we're not experiencing good. We're not experiencing righteousness. We're not experiencing good relationships. We're not experiencing a right way of living. He says, no, 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 no. It's better to have not had it uh, and to have never been. So ultimately, if I could sum it up in this, that, that quality over quantity is, is really what he's leaning into. That volume doesn't make happiness. You can have a million years on this planet, but if they're not good days, if they're not good years, then what good are they? You're just spending your life spinning your wheels. Think about who's talking right now. You got Solomon. You got a thousand wives. You can have them all, but man, it's just conflict and hatred and bitterness and heresy and false gods and Molech. And he says, uh, quantity doesn't make you happy. Uh, more kids, let me just say this in a couple of ways. I'm, I'm all for more kids. More kids doesn't fix a broken marriage. Having more doesn't make it better. Now, having more may, may be better. That's completely up to you. But the idea is, well, if I had a uh, hundred kids, then all my problems would be gone. I would never be alone. 
unless you're alone, right? You can have all these family members and experience no good through it. Uh, and it, what, what it seems to me is he talks about, and then being not buried. You don't even have a relationship where there's honor in your own death. What good is it to have all these things and all these people and all these years and all these, the, the four things, you know, wealth and honor and children and, and length of days. What good is that to have more of it if what you have isn't worth having? Uh, So again, that's an important idea. If I could sum up the first three verses of chapter one, it would be the single word contentment. More doesn't mean better. More doesn't mean you'll finally be happy. If I just had one more dollar or one more day to live or one more decade to live, or I could do this, that's ultimately Solomon's laying into the ax to that root there. But let's keep reading. In the same vein of thinking, he says in verse four, he cometh in with vanity. So he comes in with emptiness. He departeth in darkness and his name shall be covered with darkness. So think about the longest living person that you could imagine, the most wealthy, the most honorable, or the biggest family. And he says, yet time erases everything. He comes in with emptiness. He goes out in darkness and obscurity, and then darkness erases his name. That's what it says. It, uh, and his name shall be covered with darkness. So think about this. We were born into this world, what Solomon's saying. We were born into this world with nothing, We will all die. This is super happy, right? We will all die in obscurity. And eventually, all of humanity will forget everything you ever did. (laughs) Thanks, Solomon. Right? Now, listen, I came across this article, and I wish I had read the whole thing. I didn't read all of it. I read some of it. Um, And the article, uniquely, was about Joseph Stalin. And uh, the, the, the title of the article said something along the lines of Joseph Stalin finally losing uh, influence. Not Joseph Stalin's been dead for decades, but his influence is waning so much in Russia. And again, I didn't get into all the details of it, but essentially what they were saying is that this man, who was once not just a leader of that, that nation, he was a dictator and, and like, almost like a demigod leading those people. And yet now, just these few generations later, time has relegated every shred of his influence to the back shelf. Time is forgetting everything he ever instilled and installed. That's a good thing. He's a nefarious, notorious uh, character in history. But the fact of the matter is, uh, all generations move on and time covers everything. Time erases everyone and everything, no matter how good or notorious, except Jesus, right? There's just one name that's going to remain forever. But I was thinking about this, Brother Gray. Brother Gray hung the drywall here at Faith Baptist Church, right here. Brother Gray was up on scaffolding hanging this. Did you know if the Lord tarries is coming a thousand years, that will be gone too? In a in hundred years, no one will know who hung the drywall. In a hundred years, no one will know who the pastor was in 2015. No one will know who the pastor was in 2010. No one will know anything about us. Time will erase even the good that we do. Think about the phrase, departed in darkness. Let's go back to Stalin. Now, there's probably some super brilliant person in here who knows this answer, and, and good, good for you, more power to you. Where did Stalin die and how, how did Stalin die? The vast majority of us don't know, right? Because time erases it. It doesn't matter to most people. Even this man who was so incredibly influential, we don't even know because time has erased it. He died in darkness and, his, and darkness is covering his name. Uh, eventually, someone's going to take, uh, our kids and our grandkids will have their own dictators to remember. And even a dictator will be forgotten. Even a pastor will be forgotten. Even a president will be forgotten. It doesn't matter who you are. Someone's going to break your records, take your office, move into your house and think your paint color was ugly, and you're not even going to have paint color still there. It's all going to be gone. It's true, though. <laughs> and, and, and it's 100% right 
but, and it's a sore evil, as he says, uh, you're never going to be able to leave a mark that lasts long enough. But here's the escapable part. Don't live to leave a mark, at least on this life. Don't live to be remembered. Don't live to build a castle. Don't live to build a kingdom. Escape, that's a reality. Whatever you build, you build in sand and time erases it and darkness will cover even your very name. But that's only if you live to build a mark. And Solomon, for all of his greatness, is no match. And you're gonna see it in a second. This is, this is why he's saying it's an evil. Solomon, in all of his great ability and, 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 and possessions, is no match for the perfect win-loss record of time. Time is undefeated. It erases everyone. It erases everything. There are some things it doesn't erase, right? There are some things moth and rust cannot corrupt. But even think about Solomon. Even the magnificent temple that Solomon built, Solomon funded, Solomon helped plan, Solomon orchestrated the building of the temple. And Nebuchadnezzar tore it down. Well, then later... Herod and some other guys and some of the people before Herod, they went back in Nehemiah and there was some building of the temple and then that got torn down. And man, we paid for Faith Baptist Church and the Lord tarries is coming in 500 years. This building won't be here. It's just part of it. The win-loss record of time is, is perfect. It always wins, except with Jesus. Now, look at verse number five. It says, moreover, he hath not seen the son, so he's talking about that unborn child, nor known anything, this hath more rest than the other. What a sad way to look at life. Solomon's essentially ticked off. Nothing I ever do, nothing the most wealthy man, which would have been Solomon, okay, long life, tons of family, honor above all, nothing we could ever do will ever beat the win-loss record of time. He said it was like the kid who, who died in the womb was better off than that. What a sad way to live. If you're living to make a mark, because you're never going to be able to make that mark. But you can make an eternal difference. Look at verse number six. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice old, yet, he hath, uh, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. He said we build we're, we're powerful. Even if you live 2,000 years, where are you going to go? The grave. Even if you have 100 kids, where are you going to go? The grave. Even if you're the most honored and or wealthy person on the planet, where are you going to go? The grave. Because no one beats the curse. That's ultimately what it is, right? We know what death is. Sin came and then death by sin. Nobody escapes the curse. Solomon's not seeing it that way. Solomon's seeing it as, as some kind of uh, time erasing, you know, darkness that overshadows all men, but that's because of the curse. Now, uh, this next verse lets you in on Solomon's observation of man's motive. And this is important. Look at this, verse seven. All the labor of a man is for his mouth. And yet the appetite is not filled. If I had to pick a key verse of the whole chapter, it's that one. Because it lets us in on what he said. And what he's about to say, um, it, it's a bit of an oversimplification. Um, he's using a bit of a word picture. He says, everything man wakes up and strives for is to feed himself. Now, if you have a teenager, that's probably true. Um, but I don't think that's what it's illustrating. It, it's the idea of satisfying appetites. It's the idea of, hey, I got to build. I got to build better. I got this desire. I got this hunger. I'm chasing after this thirst. I want to live. I want to satisfy myself. And yet... The appetite 
is not filled. The end of verse number seven. All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not filled. Solomon essentially says, if you could boil down everything a man could do into one picture, it's this. A man wakes up to earn so he can eat, so he'll be hungry again. Because it, it doesn't satisfy. There's no end to all of his labor. There's no time where he's not going to be hungry again. The appetites return. The appetite demands more. Satisfaction is this ever-distant mirage that cannot actually be held or kept at all. Uh, think about the, the addictions of mankind. Put that in here. If a man wakes up every day to satisfy his, his addiction, and yet the appetite is not filled. He spends every dollar. He spends every moment. He loses his family trying to grab and satisfy this particular lust. They hungered after. They satisfy it. And then they're hungry for it again. And in all the labor of a man is to satisfy his mouth. And yet he is never fully satisfied. Think about the other things that we talked about. People chase long life. People chase Lots of family and loved ones. People chase wealth. People chase honor. And you can chase all those things. Time's going to erase everything you do. But the fact of the matter is, even if you could get it, it doesn't satisfy the appetites. Verse number eight. The, the word four is important. Because no one can actually attain or hold on to satisfaction, no one can beat the system or overrule time uh, erasing them. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living. Here's what he said. There's no difference between the wise man, the foolish man, or the poor man. They all die with empty and unsatisfied hands. They all die with hunger they were never able to fully quench. So let's just examine that in reality. I know it's painful, okay? But let's just examine that in reality, right? You got Steve Jobs. We all, well, the vast majority of us have been affected by Steve Jobs you know, acumen and genius to one degree or another. You got an iPhone, you got a, a MacBook, you got something of the, along those natures. Brilliant man, one of the most influential people of our era, right? But he died. He died of pancreatic cancer. All of his money could not stop that from happening. All of his ability could not prolong what happens to the fool and what happens to the poor person. We all go to one place. His hands were just as empty on the day of judgment as any other human being. The fool and the wise die both broke and unsatisfied. And Solomon, again, is 100% correct. Life under the sun. They all go into the grave and into darkness. But here's, that's 100% real. But it's also 100% escapable. You realize that, right? Because of Jesus, you and I have a very different perspective on the way life should go and where this all ends. Um, uh, we have, so under the sun, time is the ultimate winner. Time and darkness covers everything and erases everything. But in heaven, God is austere, okay? The word austere speaks of keeping meticulous and very uh, articulate records. And so the idea that, hey, you can live and do and have whatever, it won't actually satisfy you, and it will go away eventually, and it'll erase and be forgotten by everything. But heaven is not that way. God is austere to both the lost and the saved. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Now, I'll be real with you. If I'm a lost person, I want this to be the end of it right here. I want time to erase it. I want time to erase all my bad deeds. I want, I want it to just go out in the wash and me blank out, and that's it. 
But that's not, that's life under the sun, right? You get buried in a cemetery and eventually the headstone falls over and nobody even knows your body's there. The casket's gone too, right? But that's not how heaven works. That's life under the sun. That's not life under heaven. For lost people, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20, verse number 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. So small and great may, may, may be leaning into children or adults. It might more likely be leaning into the idea of those who are notorious, those who are famous, and those who are nobodies, right? I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened and another book. So there's three books was opened, which is the book of life. So we know what one of those books are. The dead were judged out of those things that were written in the, in the books. So the other two books obviously show what the standard of right and wrong was and what they did. So it says, and according to their works. So it's my estimation, I think a pretty easy reading of the three books. There's the book of life, okay? Your name, lost person, is not found in this book of life. You cannot go into the presence of God. I believe the next book is the word of God, the standard for what is true. I believe the following book is a book of all of their works, because that's what the Bible says right there, according to their works. They were, de- they were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So those are the three books, in my estimation, that are open on that day. And God is gonna judge Everything time erased. God is going to judge. So Stalin, right? The the people in Russia barely understand or know about his history anymore. But God has a perfect record of it. And he's going to judge out of those books. If his name's not in the book of life, he's going to be judged according to the word of God and according to his works. Every lost person will stand before God. So again, Solomon's, I don't think for Solomon particularly, but for lost people in this situation, you would hope Solomon is right and that's the end of the story. It just gets erased and that's it. We all go to the grave, the rich people, the wise people, the poor people, boom. And I'm not suggesting Solomon didn't believe in heaven. Solomon is just talking about the end of the grave. And a lost person would wish that the grave was it, but it's not. God judges all things perfectly. Not only does he judge the lost people, but he's also austere in judging perfectly for saved people. Uh, the, the idea of time erasing your accomplishments, the idea of, you know, we use this uh, illustration of this drywall. Yeah, time will erase this drywall, but someday Brother Gray will get a reward before Jesus for even a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple. And here's why I know that. Matthew 6, 20 says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. It can't erase it. It can't ruin it. It can't tarnish it. It can't make it be forgotten. Where moth or rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So nothing erodes or erases in the treasures of heaven for both the saved and for the lost. And again, this idea, I believe that Solomon is leaning into, has, has a New Testament parallel. When Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 19, if in this life, all we have is hope in Christ, all we have is hope in this life, we are of all men most miserable because we are all going to the same grave. We're going to die just like that lost person. Time's going to forget everything we did just like that lost person. No one's going to remember us in 100 years just like those lost people. What benefit is there to being wise or being a fool? What benefit is there to being saved or being lost if this is the end? That's what Paul's talking about. If, if this is it, man, what a miserable existence. But it's not. There's an austere God keeping perfect records of everything you have done, and he will reward you. So again, Solomon's not wrong. When 100% correct, life under the sun, everybody goes there. But life under heaven is a very different perspective uh, to look after. Uh, look at verse number six. It says, better, in, better is the sight of the eyes, so what you can actually see, than the wandering of desire, the fantasies of what you might could have. This, also, uh, this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. So essentially what he's saying 
It's best to enjoy the things that are actually in your life than, than ignoring and kind of fumbling and looking past the things in your life that you can actually see to say, yeah, but if I could just have more. Well, if what you have is what God gave you, that's, that's enough. Don't be, so, don't be so set on finding contentment. Yeah, I've got this appetite. I know I have these things, but I've got this appetite. And if I can just satisfy that, I'd be satisfied. No, you won't. You will not. doesn't matter how much money or how much family or how much honor or how many days of life, you're still not going to be satisfied. It's an evil that is common among men. Nobody escapes it. It's just the reality. Now, one of the most powerful reminders of the entire book is found at the end of verse number 10, but let's walk through the front end of verse number 10. It says, that which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Now, there's, there's more maybe than might meet the immediate eye um, in that particular phrase. He's actually talking about Adam here, uh, at least my understanding of it, and it seems pretty clear. The Hebrew word, we are in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for man is Adam, it's Adam. So that which has been is named already. God already made someone, and it is known that it is man, that first created man. Neither may uh, uh, he uh, contend with him that is mightier than he. So, so put this back in the context. We just spent a bunch of time saying, hey, no one wins. No one beats time. Time erases everything. No one lives uh, for stuff or to, to overrule and to, no, no one gets satisfied doing this life this way. And now the author brings in and says, hey, and the first Adam, he tried to do it his own way too. He tried to be like the most high. He tried to eat the fruit. It's already been known. He's already tried it. And neither can he, Adam, contend with him that is mightier than he. You and I, if Adam can't beat God and find satisfaction, you and I can't either. In fact, uh, Solomon's simply saying this way, you can't win. You cannot escape the reality of life under the sun. You cannot go trying to be satisfied with life under the sun and, be, and, and find that, ha- that satisfaction and happiness. You cannot hold it. It's a, it's a mirage that cannot be kept. It doesn't exist. And again, everyone's already tried it is what he's saying. Adam tried it. It didn't work for him. And what is the entire book of Ecclesiastes? I've already tried it and it didn't work for me. No one content. I'll say it this way. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You don't get to prove God wrong and do it your own way and find satisfaction. It's an inescapable reality. Adam already tried it. It didn't work for him. He couldn't contend with God. And everybody from the Adamic race cannot uh, overcome that reality either. No one contends with God and wins. And that's a bit of a breath of fresh air because that's some real solid reality. I don't know. Maybe there have been seasons. I would probably submit to you there have been in your life. I know there have been in mine where I've tried to contend with the Lord to try to change the variables, right? That like, man, I don't want that. I want this. I wish it were this way. Uh, I've seen so many people try to walk away from the principles of God and say, yeah, I am gonna find satisfaction though. I am gonna be happy with enough money. I am gonna be happy with enough family. I am gonna be happy when they, you know, put my name in lights and I'm honored above all people. I am gonna be, you watch me, I'll do it. Well, the first Adam, the first human couldn't do it. The most wealthy human couldn't do it. You cannot contend with him that is mightier than you. You lose this battle every time. And even if you could climb to the top of it and have a hundred children and find a way to live 2,000 years and become the most wealthy man on the planet that you have no need of anything, you don't win. Why? Well, because God erodes your satisfaction. God says, yep, that's not good. That, in fact, in chapter five, he says, the riches don't even allow you to rest. He's gonna take all that away from you. You don't get to contend and win, which is ultimately what this chapter is about. Look at verse number 12. For who knoweth what is good for a man in this life? Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Back to verse 11. 
seeing there. So no one wins in the contest against God, seeing there. So here's why. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? He says there's so many places, empty places to look. And are we any better for them? There are so many ways to chase down satisfaction. Even if it's not money or honor or family or, or length of days, there's so many vanities and yet man is no better for all of those things. Man can chase all of those things and they're all empty and dry holes and man is no better for them. Now look at verse number 12. For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? <laughs> I love it. Go back to the garden. Adam, you are not a capable discerner of good and evil. You're not, you cannot be trusted with this responsibility. And since the fall, we are terrible at discerning good and evil for ourselves, right? We are horrible arbitrators of truth. And notice what verse 12 says. Hey, even if you seek in all those vanities to make yourself happy, man is no better for it. For who knoweth? No one knows what's good for man in this life. You try to go find satisfaction in all of these things. And Solomon says, we don't even know where to look. Solomon's like, I turned over every rock there was to turn over. I knew what to turn over. And nowhere you look, you'll ever find it. Because none of us know how to determine good and evil correctly. That's why God told us not to do it in the first place. He was going to leave that responsibility with himself. Notice what he keeps saying. For who knoweth what is good for, for man in this life, all the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow, or who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? So, hey, you're not going to win. Time will erase it all. You're not going to contend with him that is mightier than you. Adam already tried it. I've already tried it. No one wins. There's too many things out there that are empty. We are no better for all of those things. And man does not know what is good for him. And here's the thing. Even if you could know what's good for you, you don't know what's coming next. So you'd be like, yeah, but I need this job. And God's like, yeah, but you don't know what's happening in three weeks. That, that's what he's saying in verse number 12. Let me see it again. Let me show you it again. For the very end, for who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Here's the thing. We need to submit to the sovereignty of God. That's talking about his power. Why do we need the sovereignty of God? Why is the sovereignty of God so important? Because he's omniscient. He knows, he, he has the power to bring into our life that which we need because he knows what tomorrow is, okay? You and I, if we could steal the sovereignty from God, Yes, I can make my own decisions finally. I, abs I actually found a way, it, it doesn't exist, hypothetically and, and absolutely erroneously speaking, I found a way to seal the, the autonomy back from God and I have the sovereignty and he can't tell me what to do. I'm gonna make my own decisions. Oh no, I don't know what tomorrow is. You are lacking omniscience. You don't know what, you don't, you don't know what to pick. Even if you could pick in all these empty dry wells, you don't know what's good for you because you don't know what tomorrow is. You might take that job and God knew if you took that job, you'd lose your family. You don't know that. You need both the sovereignty of God and the omniscience of God. That's why you shouldn't try to win this match. Adam couldn't win it. Solomon couldn't win it. You and I shouldn't even try to win it. We don't know where to pick. We find all these different places. And for some, you know, he hit the nail on the head, man. Maybe it's family or maybe it's honor. or Maybe it's wealth or maybe it's length of days. And you have these, well, maybe for you, it's this or that. Listen, there's, a, there's shelves full of things to check. Solomon says, nobody's ever found anything because nobody knows what comes tomorrow. Man doesn't know what's after him. We don't know what to pick. We are so underqualified to choose for ourselves a life that will satisfy and make it past the grave. So don't. If I had to give you one piece of admonishment as we close the chapter tonight, so don't. You can't win. You can't beat time. It will erase 
even the good that you do. God, he keeps records, so that's either a good thing or a bad thing, depending upon what you're heaping up for yourselves, right? The fact of the matter is, nobody before you has ever beat it. Nobody ever before you ever contended and won the ability to choose for themselves and make right decisions. Even if you could, you don't know what is good for you. We are no better for it. Mankind is worse for their ability to choose. By knowing good and evil for ourselves, we put ourselves in the situation, right? Because we don't know what tomorrow is. We don't know what's coming next. So again, don't. Don't war like Adam did. Don't search like other men did. Don't build something that you care that it's going to be erased. Build something that you know can't be erased, right? Uh, you can build all these things on this planet, and it can have eternal value if you do it the right way. But for the most part, the things you're going to build, they're going to be erased, right? Nothing under the sun satisfies. It doesn't. You can, you can chase that appetite, but it will not be satisfied. You'll still be hungry because no one proves God wrong. No one goes to war and wins. So don't go to war. Let's pray.